Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in just a little bit better. Today's episode is about From Hell. This graphic novel by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell came out between 1989 and 1998, 100 years after the Jack the Ripper murders it's based on. We look at the meticulous research they put into this to try to understand how this story manages to be about true crime while indulging in deep themes regarding English identity, psychogeography, and the nature of time. Hey, you can find the show page at patreon.com slash supercontext, where you can leave us a comment or write us an email at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com. When did you first hear about From Hell? And were you able to read it then? Charlie, I woke up in the middle of the night the other night screaming. Uh, uh, is this news? Why? I, ro- why I rolled are you over. It up now? I rolled over, and I was half asleep. And I opened my eyes, and I could have sworn I saw William Gull's face emerge from the shadows next to my bed, right toward my face. And I yelled out loud in the room in the real world. I yelled, yeah, and woke up my yeah. wife and all our animals. Um, how often do you have nightmares that bring you out that violently and wake other people up? Very rarely. I think that's the first time in years. Um, yeah. yeah. The only time I've had this kind of nightmare and I've had it, you know, I had it a lot was um, when I was living in Boston, actually. Uh, a friend of mine who was living in Atlanta killed himself and I dreamed him a lot in various ways. And did you wake and up yelling or like, uh, did you wake yourself I, up? I woke myself up a couple times, yeah. not with like a yell, but with a sort of, um, uh, some kind of communicative sort of wake up. Like there were a couple times when I was delighted to see him. I remember one dream that was totally a, Oh, look at that. You fooled everybody. And I was talking to him and woke myself up. And then also he was a ghost, you know, he uh-huh. was a, a sort of vengeful ghost that, and, woke me up uh or i woke myself up through that dream it's a freaky freaky fucking thing when that happens yeah i have hypnagogic jerks pretty regularly you know what those are i do yeah where like you You know the audience might not though yeah so it's that thing where like you feel like you're falling in a dream and then you wake up right when you're about to hit the ground or something like that and the actual movement wakes you yeah yeah um that happens fairly regularly but uh, nothing like this. And uh, I have been reading that during the coronavirus quarantine that we're in right now, apparently people are having nightmares more regularly. And so when it happened, I was like, well, maybe I guess I could attribute it to the overall anxiety and stress of that going on. And I have been power reading through right. from hell. You were in the pre-production process for this episode, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that it was William Gull's face. It wasn't just like, yeah. 
the return of the repressed for you. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I've been reading this at a steady clip for about a week now. And um, yeah, it really scared the shit out of me. Like I'd never thought of him before as like a supernatural scary villain in the way of like, I don't know, Leatherface or Hannibal Lecter or something like that until this reading. I think this is my third full read through of this book. Had you done um, the work on like uh, Eddie Campbell's talking about Hannibal Lecter? Had you been sort of pressed yes. to yeah. read him now as Gull? Uh, read Gull now as Lecter? I was in that process. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was interesting because I woke up and I was like shocked and I woke everybody up in the middle of the night. And then, you know, the next morning I was like, okay, obviously it's because my subconscious is trying to put these pieces yeah, you're, together you're processing a lot of shit yeah um but it reminds me that it wasn't that long ago that i was the kind of young gentleman who went on jack the ripper tours in london you went on a jack ripper tour oh yeah was kyle canane there no but that kyle canane bit has a particular piece of resonance for me because that's how I felt <laughs> when I did it. Uh, this was Can probably... you explain that punchline? I mean, we don't have to do the setup. Can There's you just a explain Kanane, what the joke is? Yeah, he has a joke on one of his re recent records about how he went to London and he did one of the Jack the Ripper tours and that he felt kind of gross about how about how commercial the whole thing was. And then the, pu the punchline of the bit is that gets to the very end and the tour guide says and Jack the Ripper killed as many as five victims and Calcanane's like five he's like we get that many being killed every day in America what's the big deal yeah our serial killers are productive so yeah so I uh I did that in 2000 I want to say is when I was in London for that particular uh trip and it was very similar. I'm sure our European and British listeners will have more information on this than I do. But at the time, this is going on 20 years ago now, uh, Whitechapel was pretty commercialized. So when we were walking around, it was like, oh, there's a Starbucks. And like, it was very touristy and nice. It's nothing yeah. like it's depicted in here. And um, there's some talk about that in the research and there's some talk about that from more in the appendices to From Hell, but uh, that the, the area has become, I guess, gentrified. And um, so you've got these hordes of people walking through this neighborhood every night. I'd say my tour was like 20 people. And then there were like three or four other tours concurrently going on around us. So yeah. there's just constantly these groups of tourists walking around, going to the sites of each murder. And then I think they end, the mine ended at the 10 bells. Um, I was fascinated with the Jack the Ripper stuff after I read this the first time. I went, I went to London with my then girlfriend. We went on the Jack the Ripper tour. While I was there, I got the Stephen Knight book. The Final Solution. This very book the, that the book inspired that, yeah, From Hell. Yeah. And then here's what I did. I went home to America and I visited my grandmother. My grandfather was a Freemason and he was pretty high up within the New England Freemasonry uh, community. And uh, he was also a Shriner. And I was fascinated by that from reading 
this book, but also the final solution. The final solution is like way more into the Masonic conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, Hey, Grammy, you should read this book. (laughs) (laughs) So my copy of the final solution, I left with my grandmother and I don't know if she ever read it or not. I have a memory that the more I am unable to find evidence of it online, the less I trust it. Hmm. But I remember very clearly Leonard Nimoy doing a parody of his like paranormal uh, mysteries show. You remember he was the host on a like he was a host in the the way that um, Jonathan Frakes is a host of that um, show that he does now. Okay, I get what you're saying. Frakes hasn't done that show for 25 years. Well, no, he's doing it right now because that's the only thing I see on the internet it's, is that clip of him that, doing that. <laughs> that. That is 25-year-old footage that is now becoming a meme. Jonathan Frakes yeah. doesn't look anything like that now. <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing. I don't have any way to describe to you what I'm trying to say. I was hoping that you would be like, oh, I have, yes. I don't know what a you're show, talking about. A show that I have connected to many times because of my previous work and stuff to blow your mind. Um, let me see if I can find it on the... Uh, internet now uh Leonard Nimoy paranormal show uh in search of okay uh Leonard Nimoy hosted um a show called in search of which was investigations into the controversial and paranormal for instance UFOs Bigfoot Loch Ness Monster and Jack the Ripper well yeah and that's the thing he was supposed to be it was supposed to be Rod Serling and um Leonard Nimoy was tapped because Serling died because cigarettes yeah. Uh, so Leonard Nimoy was doing a parody of a show that I was unaware of because I was young when I saw this thing. I think it was a Saturday Night Live filmed sketch. And Leonard Nimoy did a story about how Jack the Ripper was actually Jackass the Ripper, a donkey that killed all these people. Okay. It was very much a land shark style absurdity. But Nimoy did it like hardcore like he performed the fuck out of it right Mm -hmm. and by the end he had his spock ears on um to really like slam home how ridiculous this was while still playing it completely straight and he leaned back in his room and a voice that was a donkey voice went you know and uh well my throat did not want to even try to do a donkey neigh at all um but a donkey voice said leonard you know off screen and he kind of leaned back and said, we never know what will happen, blah, 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 blah. So we have two and it's very scary. different experiences with the Jack oh, the wait, wait. mythology. No, no, we didn't. Because, <laughs> listen, that yeah. scared me for a long time. <laughs> My God, you were, you were such an impressionable young kid. I was. I was young enough that... The non-absurd performance by Leonard Nimoy uh-huh. got under my skin. And so it didn't matter. I didn't, like, dream of a donkey. Yeah. But the creepiness of this idea of the Ripper, Jack the Ripper, Did got you into know me. what no, that meant? I didn't. I didn't. It was... And and also, here's the thing. I haven't been able to find that uh-huh. ever. Yeah. So like, it it's starting to feel like I made happened. it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so Jack the Ripper was in some way a symbol for a little while and then just disappeared because uh, as a young man in America, I started learning about serial killers and what they could actually get up to. Mm -hmm. And Jack the Ripper was just sort of 
just a he was a cartoon. He he was just like a silly idea. He was a character in that um uh a time travel movie. Time with, after um, time. Yeah. And so it just became it just became a different I don't even know how to describe it. I'm kind of lost now in my memory and realizing just how affecting this memory that might not exist has been for me. Well, I think there's a way to tie this together, right? So both of our experiences, no matter how disparate they are from each other, show what the legacy of Jack the Ripper has become internationally, right? We're not even English citizens. And we have this... um, attachment to the idea of the mythology of Jack the Ripper. And when we were growing up, it was the height of what uh, Moore and the folks in here refer to as Ripperology. And so we were were immersed in that point where everybody was trying to figure out who it was. There were a billion different theories. It was really on the mind of people in pop culture. I think because it was the centennial of the, the first murder. Um, And so there was just a lot of it in the air. And this book is designed to capture that and sort of flip that commercialized pop culture version of Jack the Ripper on its head. Yeah, by someone who lived close enough to where Jack the Ripper, um, you know, originated, where, where it all happened, to think of it more as... Well, the Whitechapel killings, as opposed to Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. the the killer. I remember when uh, the Stephen King story Spring Heel Jack made its way to me, I think in the Night Shift collection. Uh, all I could think is, oh, Jack. So it's this is Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it was so detached from place. It was so detached from history. Jack the Ripper was just an idea that could move from moment to moment. Yeah. But this this is not this work is almost like the um the erasing of that detachment, like the the reassociating of Jack the Ripper with the place it was. Well, I mean, I think what I I'll just come right out and say this is one of my favorite books of all time. Um it is my favorite Alan Moore work. It is easily in my top 5 books of all time. Uh And I think one of the things that I love about it so much is that it both fictionalizes and demystifies the murders in a way that I don't think any of the other Jack the Ripper pop culture stuff does. Right. Like time after time or was the Michael Caine movie like that, that stuff, the from hell movie. (laughs) Have you seen that? Uh, only stills. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. So this actually like works to demystify and give you some context as to what life was like for the victims, what the disparity was like between classes at the time, uh, what the actual setting was like and how it contributed to the, well, we're going to talk a lot about psychogeography today. Um, but at the same time, Moore and Campbell completely acknowledge This is totally fictional. Neither of them actually think that William Gull was Jack the Ripper. This is just them running with one of the theories and taking it as far as they could in this format. Yeah. I have learned, as we've done Super Context, and we've done um, three Alan Moore media artifacts up till now. I think Mm. it was Neonomicon, Miracle Man, and Providence. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I have learned that not only do I have a very uh, a specific preference for what kind of Alan Moore work I like, but it is also kind of my pinnacle enjoyment when it comes to maybe postmodern literature. Um, I adore stories that are threaded through um, crazy reinterpretations of historical events. Mm-hmm. Not period pieces, not um, historical recreations, not alternate histories, but stuff that takes that kind of conspiracy theory, that sort of um, Umberto Eco, Foucault's pendulum style, like deep dive and plays with it and makes a story out of it that then can kind of hold on to all kinds of ideas, all kinds of things out in the world. Yeah, I... I agree it is a particular uh trope that that grabs me pretty hard i mean i would be i would be dishonest if i didn't admit that my graphic novel the cabinet was heavily inspired by from hell yeah that's the kind of book um Um, it's like the play of it the the kind of literary game you know that's why also why i like pale fire mm um you know i all of a sudden now i can't think of anything i've ever enjoyed in my life but the uh, the literary Gravity's puzzle, a uh, Gravity's Rainbow. Although Gravity's Rainbow doesn't operate like this, mm-hmm. Gravity's Rainbow is more of a a fugue, right? Of, Pride of, of here's all these things. Yes, Pride of Baghdad is like that. Um, but the idea, I, I think, I enjoy the idea of research mm-hmm. as part of the fictional the the, the fiction writing process. That I'm delighted by the idea of someone having a, you know, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia style corkboard with yarn and, you know, over. And the reason I I have one of those right behind me right now. I do. Yeah. And the reason I say it's always sunny in Philadelphia style is because it's a very minimal mystery in that show that creates this crazy Charlie Day experience. And the idea of being able to find something that is so insignificant historically or sort of um uh so fictional you know so untrue and then play with it and expand it into a um inassailable edifice mm-hmm. of narrative mm-hmm. it just makes me like excited to think about it and the process and i feel like this is the moment also where i should tell everyone that uh coronavirus is affecting my performance on the podcast today there is <laughs> a lot of background noise in my house right now. And so you might wonder why is Charlie sounding so drunk? I like to think that instead of it being a gaggle of children that are trapped in your home during a pandemic, that it is the ghosts of the victims of Jack the Ripper that are manifesting in the background on our podcast. Yeah, but there were only five victims of Jack the Ripper. You've got more than five. <laughs> well, I've, I've got, I've got the kids and then other, I've got other presences other spirits. in here. T- <laughs> um, that's a good point for us to segue into what this is about. So maybe you don't know about this book. It's called From Hell, and it is a graphic novel by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. It was originally published between 1989 and 1998. They spent almost 10 years on this. So I want to ask you about that. I mean, it is now published as a graphic novel. Yeah. But it wasn't, right? It was not. A, right. It was a serial. 
and it was a cereal that had huge stretches. It was like mm. a a relative who would come back from their travels every once in a while <laughs> and drop their journal uh, mm-hmm. on you and then go away again. Yeah, um, I am not old enough to have been following it when it was serialized. Uh, and also, even if I was, Taboo Magazine that it was printed in is kind of obscure and I don't think showed up in the comic shops that I was going to. Uh, and honestly, and I'll talk about this later when we get to talking about the magazine's publishing history, it's like a white whale for me. Like mm-hmm. if if I ever find copies of Taboo in a comic book store or like at a convention, I will buy them because they're just amazing. It's, it's yeah. a stunning collection of work and it is where From Hell first appeared. I checked last night because I was like, oh, maybe I can order them on eBay. And each issue is like somewhere between 36 and $60 a pop now. It's funny. I feel like I remember people mentioning From Hell in process, you know, because I was I was hanging out with the folks who would really be into this in the early 90s. Mm. And I think that there m- must have been some folks who had found a copy of Taboo somewhere or, sure. you know, had uh, had already planned on um, subscribing to whatever came out of this particular group of people in, in England. And so they were on top of it. But from hell was like, who knows when it's going to end? Who knows what it is like? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, I think that this might have been one of the places where my sort of oh I I want to read it when it's all completed, mm-hmm. kind of um uh, you know general sentiment might have uh, screwed me out of a very interesting experience that I could have had. Well, one of the things that's fascinating we'll get into this is that uh, my understanding is when it was published in Taboo originally, there was no point where it said this is a story about the Jack of the Ripper killings. And so the first, I'd say four chapters of this, which would have appeared in separate issues, don't seem connected to that in any way. There's no obvious connection and it's printed in a horror magazine. So if you're reading it and you clearly knew who Alan Moore was, if you were reading taboo magazine, you were probably like, what, what is this? What am I reading? You know? Uh, And it was only, probably five years into the project that it started to become obvious. Yeah. And this is Alan Moore post Watchmen, right? So he has, he has the cachet to do this. He, he is enough of a, a known quantity, enough of a brand, enough of a controversy to be able to kind of play off his name. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't put it that way. He, yes, he was a name and he was a big deal at that point. But he had done stuff like this before then, too. You know, V for Vendetta was published in a very similar way, but in just a a, a different magazine uh, serialized over time. Um, Do you think that V for Vendetta was as obscure, though, about its plot leading up? I mean, it's been a while since I read it. Yeah. So that's really what I'm thinking about is that if you get the first chapter and it's two guys talking about British history on a beach. Yeah, right. It's like, well, it's Alan Moore, so I'll, I'll find out. As yes, to, I think for readers. Guys? But sorry, let me clarify. I think that might be why readers were willing to put up with it. The publishing uh, entity were people that Moore was friends yes, with. Gotcha, they would have yeah. put this. Out I was anyways. only thinking of readers. Yeah. 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 I was thinking of readers and 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 the sort of um, okay, I'll trust this person. 
even though this does not seem like the kind of thing that I would normally get into. Well, let's be honest. There are also many comic book readers who I imagine bailed on this right away. And especially, I can't remember which chapter it is, but the psychogeography chapter, yeah. the one that's just like <laughs> the two lecture. guys in a carriage <laughs> riding around London and talking about magic for 50 pages, you know? Um, yeah, All they right, probably would have jumped ship. Yeah. Speaking of people just talking, uh, so if anyone's made it to this point in the podcast and is still thinking that we are going to break into some kind of detailed um, uh breakdown of all of the easter eggs and bits and pieces mm. of from hell that is not going to happen no i we mean we're not doing a content analysis or a um a historical compare and contrast yeah and moore himself does most of the work in that respect in the collected version the appendices for this is like 60 pages long that was yeah. one of the things that first really impressed me with it when i read it um and I have not read this, but there is like a From Hell companion book that's been published. And hmm. I believe it includes more notes, sketches, and I think the complete script or at least portions of the script. Cool. Uh, so what we're going to talk about in this podcast episode is how From Hell came to be, how it was made, how it was distributed, and how people have responded to it in the larger sense, in the super context, uh, as opposed to here's how Alan Moore, you know, created this particular page. Yeah. With Eddie Campbell. Uh, you know what I just realized is I didn't insert like a, a short little summary bio of who Alan Moore is into our notes here. I guess I just assumed that all super context listeners would know. And here's your chance to do it in Alan Moore's voice. <laughs> <laughs> the birth call. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, Alan Moore is a writer uh, and I guess performing artist. Uh, he's primarily known for graphic novels and comics, although he has published two novels now at this point and done a bunch of performance art pieces, etc. I think he's written screenplays as well. He's mostly known for Watchmen, V for Vendetta, uh, this Swamp Thing. Uh, oh, and Batman the Killing Joke. That's the other big thing that people associate him with. Um, and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I could probably go on and on and on, but he's well known. A lot of if his work has been adapted. If you're an Alan Moore fan, you feel more and more like the stuff that he's done is is important and famous. Right? Probably, like you, yeah. You, you get into the place where you're like, and of course his Tom Strong work <laughs> is so powerful. Yeah, you know, I've never read Tom Strong. I, I know that was one that I wanted to pull out because <laughs> you said you'd never. Read I need it to get to Tom Strong eventually, but I haven't done it yet. Um, but yeah, so he's he was a big deal, was a big deal, is a big deal. Um, and this project came about in the autumn of 1988. According to him, he was thinking about that he wanted to write something long and serious about murder. And he wasn't even thinking about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel killings. He was thinking, he said, that was too played out and too obvious. But then the 100th anniversary came around. And that got him interested in the Stephen Knight book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, which I referenced earlier. Um, let's briefly summarize this book. So Stephen Knight uh, had the idea. He presented a theory, which I guess is a conspiracy theory that the five women who were murdered in 1888 by a person unknown or persons unknown that we now call Jack the Ripper 
were actually killed as part of a um, cover-up of a secret marriage between Prince Albert Victor, who was uh, second in line for the throne, and a working-class girl. So the somewhat uh, chaotic and um, uh, uncontrolled Prince Albert went out, got someone pregnant, married them, and in order to keep that from destroying the reputation of the crown, uh, of from dismantling the sense of what royalty was, uh, Sir William Gull, Queen Victoria's private doctor, was sent out to murder all of the women who were trying to blackmail um, the British royalty into paying them off so they wouldn't tell about how Prince Albert married someone and has a baby with them. Yeah, and there's a strong thread of Freemason conspiracy theory through there that uh, William Gull, as a Freemason, was contracted to do this. And Moore takes that and really pulls it out to like the nth degree in a kind of occult fashion. Uh, and, and in doing so, also declares that it's complete bullshit, right? Yeah, yeah. He does not believe this. He doesn't believe most, if any, of the uh, theories about who Jack the Ripper was. In fact, there is an appendices comic to From Hell that was published after the series was finished that is called, uh, what is it, The Flight of the Gull Catchers? Or The Dance yeah. of the Gull Catchers? And, and uh, it's, it's very distinctly about people who are trying to track down something about Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Trying to make something of these stories. Yeah. Um, Tim Callahan, who we've referenced on the show before, and is, is somebody I know in real life, he wrote about From Hell on Tor.com. And he said, uh, Stephen Knight's book has been discredited by most sources. But that only matters if you're looking for From Hell to actually reveal truths about Jack the Ripper. That's not what the story's about. He says, Jack the Ripper is a character in this in the same way that Watchmen is is about Rorschach. You know, it's not it's you're not trying to actually figure out something that happened in real life by reading. Yeah. Watchmen. And, and the true reveal or catharsis of the book is not about discovering that it's true. This is how it happened. Yeah. And Tim refers to this as historical fiction that's heavily researched rather than genre fiction that is heavily based on nostalgia. So this book more basically got to this point where he was reading about these murders and he read Stephen Knight's book and he decided, you know, I think I should, I should approach this. I should try to do this as a comic. And Stephen Bissett, who was the artist on Swamp Thing, uh, had just started the idea of publishing a creator-owned horror anthology comic that was called Taboo. And he said, hey, more, pitch something to us. And he was like, I think I want to do, do this Jack the Ripper story. And Eddie Campbell, the artist, had already submitted a short that was going to appear in the first issue of Taboo. And so Bissette said, I think you and Eddie Campbell should work together on this. And that's how they got connected. This is, it just feels so... It's like magical, you know, the idea that this is how it all came together. Have you right? ever read any Eddie Campbell comics other than this? No, this is the only one. Um, and and I'm, I don't mean like, oh, it's magical that Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell came together, but just the idea of there being this kind of, um, you know, this zine, right? This anthology comic. Thinking about it now, it's like, how how could that ever get off the ground now? <laughs> Yeah, 
believe me, that's something I think about yeah, a exactly. lot lately. Yeah. <laughs> and and to draw together these two really powerful creators to make something yeah. that has lasted as long as it has. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, is some people's favorite book, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like, oh, oh, what a far off time. What a... <laughs> What a sweet, innocent time of artistic creation that must have been. This was a period that was kind of a height of, um, I don't want to call them underground comics, but like alternative comics being distributed through the direct market and being yeah. successful. This was when, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was taking off or Cerebus or um, Love and Rockets, right? Like stuff like that, black and white alt comics were able to... Uh, reach enough people and generate enough income that the creators could feasibly eat a meal off of it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I don't know uh, the history of taboos like accounting, so I, I'm not sure if, if that was the case here or not. But um, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that because they burned through some money pretty quickly too. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, what Moore's pitch must have been like because he's you know he's talked about from hell enough that you can kind of get a sense of what he was thinking at the time when he pitched it to Bissett. Moore says, Once I read the florid and fabulous allegations in Knight's book, I thought this has got the bones of something. And then I read everything on the subject I could find, starting to put it all together into this huge edifice. I was not at all interested in who Jack the Ripper was. That's Hardy Boy's stuff. It was the behavior of the culture that fascinates me and still does. So he had the idea for, I'd like to do a story. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I think I want it to be about a murder, you know, to play with that kind of mm -hmm. simple, but really powerful convention. He gets attached to the Jack the Ripper murders, which he didn't expect because of this crazy ass book. And then he starts to research not only Jack the Ripper, but that time period. And it starts to expand. And now he's researching royalty and architects he says, the William Gull figure is the culprit I came upon because he was the most interesting, because he connected to a much bigger world than any of the others, so I could use him to explore all these kinds of mythical aspects of the Jack the Ripper story. And in that quote, I feel like there's almost a, him saying, I got excited because of the night book, and I looked maybe for some other possibility, like maybe mm -hmm. something else that would be a good jack the ripper conspiracy theory to attach to but he stayed with gull because of that royal connection this is definitely one of the juiciest ones um he went on to say that as he was doing the research he was unnerved and amazed because he kept finding quote confirming evidence that could support a theory those are in quotes because he doesn't believe either of those to be true and he says i knew it wasn't a theory i knew it was fictional but I, I didn't want to put a toe into the inviting pool of what the truth might be because truth with a capital T is a well-documented pathological liar. <laughs> so he took the, the sort of statement of it was a, it was a cover up of a blackmail allegation and William Gold did it mm -hmm. and then started making up his own version of that, expanding on it. And then he kept finding things that made it clear that what he was making up was true. Yeah, and then he starts talking here in the interview about the other Ripper pop culture. And he says, most of those treatments, they verge on the pornographic. And there are so many cliches that are used, and most of them are there to dress up the murders and to make it exciting. 
And then he says this, I can't be the only person who thinks doing that is completely inappropriate when you're talking about the murder of a woman in a miserable back street of Whitechapel. I think that right there is a thesis statement for this book. It, again, the demystification, right? It wasn't sexy. It wasn't cool. It wasn't gothic. It was brutal and sad. Yeah. And he avoided turning it into some kind of uh, redemption or transcendent narrative for the killer. Yeah. You know, it, it, making it about a sacrifice that was required in any way or, you know, brought about something good. Um, and he, uh, he described the murders like the first four were quick killings, you know, dirty and in alleys and whatnot. But the final one, the final killing Marie Kelly is the emblematic Ripper murder. He says the one everyone remembers to get it right. I knew I was going to have to go into that room in Miller's court with the reader and stay there as long as the Ripper did. He was there for a couple hours and this is like taking apart a corpse. And I was going to have to try to reconstruct those couple hours in painful detail. It wasn't something I was looking forward to, but I felt that in order to be respectful to the women and the circumstance that I was fictionalizing, I had to show it exactly as it was. This is really interesting to me, Chris, because I think that the end result, he can say, this is what I was attempting to do. And I feel like it's easily something that people can say, this is exploitative and gross Mm -hmm. and sensationalistic. Yeah. So I was actually just about to go there because I think that um, what he's talking about here with From Hell and this versus the other Jack the Ripper stories is what you and I would think of now about true crime podcasts, right? That there's maybe it's just me. There are true crime podcasts i believe that are exploitative and that are picking up on these sensational horrible crimes and not really doing a lot of deep research or work with them Mm -hmm. or revealing a whole lot about human nature through these stories but just regurgitating awful facts to us uh kind of in a gossipy way and boy are they successful uh and then you get the rare few true crime shows or books whatever uh that really take the time to look at the context in which these crimes were committed within and what the crimes say about the culture that they occurred in yeah you know there's gosh it's so long ago now but Patton oswalt's uh, bit about falling in love with his wife his first wife i was just gonna say his his wife's uh book about the golden state serial killer i think is is one of the rare ones that attempts this And yet his sort of joke version of how they met was who's your favorite serial killer. Mm -hmm. And Oh yeah. Did you know? Well, actually, no, he didn't cut off the hands of the dead. He actually just took the fingers or something. Oh, I'm in love like this, this kind of, there's no difference. It seems between pieces of uh, the fascination with serial killing. Mm -hmm. And yet they have these two very different intense and two very different outcomes your intent can be, ooh, I want to be all charged up because isn't it amazing? This is this guy killed these people. Mm-hmm. Or as uh, Moore said, it needed to be exactly as it was so that, quote, 
so that any armchair murderers in the audience would be made aware of exactly what it was like spending two hours in an overheated, stifling little East End flat cutting up a woman, and to do it in a way which was not glamorous or at all exciting. And yet, I'm sure there's somebody who can take from that sequence that kind of sensationalistic, exploitative enjoyment. I think there's two somebodies, and they're the Hughes brothers. Yeah, you think so? You think that that was I'm, that was a that was a cheap joke on my part. But well, if the thing s- is, I didn't see the movie, so I can't <laughs> join you in the joke. The, the, the movie does not attempt to address this stuff at all, and it it, it is fascinating how it um, it spends a lot of its time erasing all of the, these aspects <laughs> from the graphic novel, so that it can just tell the juicy, gossipy story of William Gull being the murderer. And make kind of a fantastical character out of Johnny Depp. Oh, God, to be yeah. The, the, There's the, so much time the spent with Holmes, Johnny. The psychic Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah, he spends a lot of time in the bathtub uh, doing opium and like it, putting absinthe through sugar cubes. Yeah. Yeah. So more kind of sums it up as saying, I wanted to make it the scene of this final drawn-out murder. I wanted to make it into the kind of apocalyptic scene that I felt it was to make it a scene of the cultural importance I felt it was. And it's sort of a a change of era, right? That no one knows about because it's only after it's processed by the media and people begin to respond to it. But Moore imagines this to be a kind of the beginning of the 20th century. Well, it's also kind of fascinating statement about human communication and the failures of institutions too, right? Because yeah, it was, you know, at the time he was writing it a hundred years prior, but uh, the, the ways in which the gossip spread around both from word of mouth through newspapers, even through the constabulary, uh, there was just so much confusion about who or what was going on. And, I find it really relevant to what we're experiencing right now, right? Like yeah. Jack, Jack the Ripper seems minor compared to the coronavirus pandemic. But when you watch the same way things are playing out currently, there's no way that you can have any contextual understanding of it. He needed a century's distance. Yeah. And he is thinking about the time before this and the time after it. And he can say, oh, I can, I can clearly make an argument that the, the Whitechapel killings are a turning point, that mm-hmm. stuff before it and stuff after it are so clearly different and seem connected to this moment. It's kind of like, um, you, you know, someone could try to say, well, the Kennedy assassination is the beginning of the postmodern era. Right. They could mm-hmm. they could make the case because of like grand narratives and all that. Mm-hmm. But there would probably be an argument against it because, well, there's not a distinct difference in, you know, the five years before and the five years after. There's not a sense that this is the first time this ever happened because, you know, there have been assassinations before, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But with the Jack the Ripper killings, there does appear to be sort of this node of never before had it been so obvious and named as it was in this moment. Yeah. It strikes me that, uh, the project that Moore was doing here is similar to what Tarantino was attempting with once upon a time in Hollywood, that he was trying to use the Sharon Tate murder as a similar, like nodal point for defining a before and after in culture. 
Yeah. And clearly with a very different sort of entertainment purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, Tarantino's liberties that he takes with that historical um, event are not changing the way it happened, but instead changing the the very... Uh, I'm trying to avoid spoilers. Changing the lead up and the after effects mm-hmm. of the Tate murderers makes his statement as opposed to Alan Moore trying to make his statement by going into details and making them so specific that you cannot romanticize them. Yeah. Yeah. So then he gets into this term called psychogeography that we're going to spend a lot of time with this episode. Uh, this is his definition of it. He says, it's the understanding that in our experience of any place, it's our associations, our dreams, the imaginings, the history of the place. All of that is the information that is relevant to the place, which is what we experience when we talk about the place. Can you say those in your own words? Can you can you re-say that as you would tell someone? I'll try. This is a tough one for me. Um, my experience with this terminology comes from a Will Self book that's called Psychogeography. Okay. And the... Um, uh, it's a nonfiction book. And the, the idea is that Will Self did these walking tours of places. He he wanted to see if he could, it started off because he wanted to see if he could walk from his home in London to the airport. Um, <laughs> and because it turns out that the way that London is designed, there's physically no like sidewalks that actually yeah. connect to the airport in such a way. Um and so he got the idea that like by doing these walks, he was going to have a better cultural understanding of the city that he lived in right. as like a, as like a living entity and how it affected the, the psychology of individuals and of the entire community. Nice. I read this as a kind of, um, as a rejection of, uh, the ahistorical impulse right a, a kind of american a historical impulse you mm. know knock down a building and put a, a parking lot there because it's yes. necessary in this moment yeah which comes up again later on in terms yeah. of, of this book yeah um more says that the first time he ever heard the term psychogeography was uh when he was first researching this book he said he was sent a copy of lud heat by ian sinclair he said, this is one of Ian's super dense poems that are on the verge of turning into prose. And he was dealing with his time spent maintaining lawns and gardens of churches in East London when he worked for the council. And a lot of those were Nicholas Hawksmore churches. Uh, he started to notice some alignments between these churches that were suggestive. And that all of this shows up in this book, Lud Heat. He said, I, Moore says, I was fascinated because this seemed to me to be a new way of engaging with place. Place has always been immensely important in my work, even from the earliest days of my career. And Alan Moore is uh, famously or infamously attached to his home, where he was born, where he grew up, and where he stays. Yeah, both of his novels are about Northampton. Yeah. I am really dying now to read Lud Heat by Ian Sinclair. <laughs> like it sounds that, interesting, yeah. It's quite a recommendation. And then it also, it's sort of, it's a bit of a demystifying because there's a bit of like, oh, you wanted to, you know, rework Lud Heat into a yeah a chapter of your book and you did it. 
Yeah, in in the way that uh, From Hell is demystifying the Ripper murders, he's demystifying the process of writing this book. It's not yeah. like he just sat down and had all these epiphanies and was like, yeah, aha, nothing, this nothing is it. Nothing leapt out of his head fully formed. Yeah. Um, and then he even goes on to say, more does, I quickly understood that psychogeography wasn't something Ian had invented. There were all sorts of people who had made walking with an agenda, as Ian calls it, into a kind of art form. The flaneur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did, did we talk about the flaneur before? Or was uh, that on another show? I can't remember if you and I have talked about it, but it was something that came up a lot when I was in grad school. The flaneur. Yeah. Can you describe the flaneur in no. two sentences? <laughs> you, you can probably do it better than I can. I feel like f- I would do it. Misju- yeah. I would do it injustice. The flaneur is a person who takes their wealth and luxury and uh, funnels it all into walking the city that they live in they're like a dandy kind yeah. of yeah yeah and uh <laughs> the flaneurs and cigarette dandies were sort of happening around the same time do you know that a cigarette dandy was known to smoke up to 200 cigarettes a day that's quite a bit that's quite a bit uh it, that would require a good amount of money so i suppose and you'd it, have to be a flaneur to do it and sheer force of will too yeah <laughs> so now we get into some of the um pieces that are about from hell and one of them is by greg carpenter we'll have links as as usual to all of these articles on the landing page for the episode uh greg carpenter says from a storytelling standpoint moore's decision to present uh the chapter on psychogeography which is what i was talking about earlier as a barely interrupted lecture is incredibly bold moore himself even expressed doubts to Eddie Campbell inside the script. So this is a quote from the script, from the script uh, more to Eddie Campbell says, I spent a long while trying to think of ways to tart the strip up using continuous background panels or sim- similar visual devices. I thought of liberally sprinkling the story with flashback panels to the ancient times that Gull is talking about. The more I thought about it though, I want nah, <laughs> So let's describe this chapter. Yeah, this chapter is essentially a wagon tour of a neighborhood where William Gull is being driven by Netley, his yeah. uh, assistant, his sort of uh, indentured assistant for this whole project. And Gull just opines and lectures and narrates on the history of the world that they are uh, walking around in, that they are driving around in, excuse me. Yeah. And why the churches are shaped that way. What people existed here before, what meanings, shapes and paths and relationships have all the way back to the true, like the, the Anglo history before the Saxons came along. And he's specifically connecting, I think it's five. It might be more structures in that neighborhood that are phallic symbolic representations of as gull sees it uh men trying to subdue women essentially through through culture because they don't want to return to a time where women led the world uh and so there's a deeply misogynistic aspect to his occultism as well yeah. And that is not explicitly the idea of why Gull was killing the women for the queen, mm-hmm. but it's clear that it, it, it reflects it and, 
and deepens the connotations. Like this is that sort of stacking of ideas and, and, um, uh, reflections, inferences and connotations to make the story about so much more than Jack the Ripper was actually a well-known person who was killing under cover of darkness. Yeah. Carpenter goes on to mention, he talks about this scene in the middle of this chapter where (laughs) Gull and Netley stop for lunch and they're eating kidney pie. And uh, he mentions, he says, you know, Moore and Campbell were able to transform a theological discussion using the medium of comics into this visual precursor of the murders themselves as Gull is cutting through the kidney pie with his knife. And Netley, throughout the course of the chapter, is getting progressively more and more nauseated as he realizes what Gull's talking about. (laughs) It's hilarious to look at this bit from Moore's script because it breaks all the rules. We can see Gull's fork as it pierces a whole kidney, the tines puncturing the smooth outer membrane and then sliding the organ about on the plate in order that it might soak up a little more gravy. It's like that's multiple actions in one beat and things that cannot be uh, immediately portrayed. (laughs) Classic more scripting, yeah. Um, And Eddie Campbell talks about that a little bit more. We'll get into it. Uh, Going back to Tim Callahan, he says, the individual chapters of From Hell, what's interesting about them is that they get increasingly larger after the first few brief installments. So you get like, you know, a chapter that's 15 pages and a chapter that's 20 pages. And then all of a sudden they're like, 50 pages long they get really long towards the middle and then they start tapering off again yeah and these are appearing in an anthology and it wasn't it didn't take 10 years because the anthology wasn't being published right it took 10 years because it wasn't every uh every episode every issue that had Mm. um an installment in it well it also wasn't it, it it went for so long that it didn't all appear in taboo either oh yeah it broke free yeah um so Callahan points out, he says Moore had the whole structure for this story mapped out, but he left the length of each chapter unknown so that the moments within them could grow organically. And so it, he went from eight to 16 page openers to 40 to 50 page chapters. And then they shrink back down in the final few. Um, at the end, you get 66 pages of appendices. And then there's the, uh, 42 of which are the annotations that Moore has written. And then another 24 is another entire comic book that we just talked about the dance of the gull catchers, which is about the history of people trying to solve the Ripper murders. Yeah. And a rejection of the idea that anything here is solved. Mm-hmm. So the graphic novel, the published book, which is quite beautiful. Um, and this is the top shelf edition that I'm talking about. The published book is a completely is different. Re- yeah, mine is about that, like that. Yeah, um, I, this is it's a, a second thick edition paperback. Yeah, it, it's like a phone book. Mine has um, the line drawing of Gull holding the scalpel or the knife. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think that's the version yeah, yeah. that they put out after the movie. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah, um, and luckily it does not have a photograph from the movie as the tie-in. <laughs> Johnny Depp and but, Heather Graham. But my point is, is that the experience of reading From Hell as a graphic novel is very different from its exp- your experience reading it as a serial because uh, 
the confusion of, wow, this is so much bigger. When is it going to come? You know, this mm. chapter is so much bigger than the last one. When is it going to come out? Where do I find it now? Now that taboos happen, all that. And when it comes all together, it becomes this like, it feels like he meant it this way because right. it is small chapters to get you in with some big sections in the middle. And then the crescendo, crescendo, which is the, um, the time spent with the Marie Kelly murder and then smaller chapters, you know, the, the denouement and then back matter, which mm. actually totally expands the work. It mm-hmm. is not, I mean, I think they're called appendices, appendices, but they are fundamental parts of the whole experience. Yeah, I you agree. Know. I agree. Yeah. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about Alan Moore. Let's talk about Eddie Campbell. So, uh, if you're not familiar with his other work, he's a British comic book artist. He's, he's best known for this, but his, his main work are on two series that he self-published. One is called Alec and one is called Bacchus. Um, Moore said when they first talked about working on this, that he knew that he wanted to work with somebody who didn't have an ordinary comic book style. And then when Eddie was pitched to him, he said, now I can't think of anybody other than Eddie for this book. And this is an Alan Moore quote about Eddie's work. He says, I've heard less informed people describe his art as scratchy or unfinished and unrealistic. These are generally people whose idea of realism is over-rendered superhero comics. <laughs> Eddie's stuff is actually very realistic because when you look at things in life, they don't have a fine line that's drawn around them. Every detail is not immediately apparent. And he, incre- he creates incredibly believable naturalism. All the scenes look like they're taking place in the same world. There's no sudden excursion into, quote, horror world. So this is a point I want to make. Campbell does not do horror work on his own. His his own stories are kind of slice of life stuff. Yeah. Isn't Bacchus a autobiography, like a a, a disguised and, and kind expressionistic of, yeah. autobiography? Yeah. 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 Now, I have to cop to um, being one of the uninformed people. Or less informed people. Like, mm-hmm. I I do think of Eddie Campbell's art as scratchy. I I feel a little bit uh, defensive when the end of that when sentence is... Yeah, right. It was when over-rendered superhero comics is the my idea of realism, if I think that Eddie Campbell's art is scratchy. But um, I think it struck me a lot because I went from Providence to From Hell. Oh, yeah. Those are two very different yeah. artists. Yeah. So Alan Moore's collaborator for Neonomicon and From Hell is Jason Burroughs, who is almost photorealistic. Almost. Um, you know, like really precise and yet still clearly comics. Which That's is... interesting. I wouldn't describe Jason Burroughs as photorealistic. But yeah. I, I think that Jason Burroughs' work... He has more precise lines that define uh, the textures and faces. Mm-hmm. And that Eddie Campbell works in black and white, and he works in a deadline weight, um, which is why I think it looks scratchy, because it looks like it's it was like literally scratched with a knife, which you know is kind of apropos for this book. <laughs> um, and so the way that Eddie Campbell creates check textures is through repetition and cross hatching. Um, whereas like Jason Burroughs also uses a deadline, 
but he he um, puts most of his detail into the features of like a face or a building or something like that, and then he lets the colors flesh out the texture. Yeah, and I think that's why. Obviously, photorealism has a very particular meaning that is not Jason Burroughs, but I think that's why I think of it as photographic or seemingly more photographic because uh, he tricks me. Mm-hmm. His art tricks me into seeing it as reality mm-hmm. instead of Eddie Campbell's work, which sort of asks me to take it in. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I agree. Um, it, and Eddie Campbell's work feels um, surreal in a way. I mean, Jason Burroughs does as well when there's the occult stuff going on in Neonomicon uh, or Providence. But so this, I love this quote from Alan Moore. Um, he cites Hookjaw as his inspiration for why Eddie was the perfect artist. And I love it because Hookjaw is one of my favorite all-time comics. Have I told you about this before? No, and I do want to point out that I, I think that he's using Hookjaw to explain what his, uh, yeah. his thinking was. He did, yeah. not, he did not say, oh, you know what? Hookjaw yeah. makes it clear that I should use Eddie Campbell. No, but it just goes to show you Alan Moore's frame of reference. Um, so he says the, the thought behind having Eddie be the choice is best illustrated for him by describing Hookjaw. Hookjaw was this, again, an anthology comic that was in a, a British boys book that was called Action. I think Hookjaw and Action were in the early 70s. Uh, and well, no, it must have been later because it was a, a Jaws ripoff. So the, the idea behind Hookjaw, the pitch would be um, this shark, uh, a great white shark, is pissed off because once upon a time someone tried to kill it, a human being, with a javelin. And that javelin got stuck in its jaw and pokes out through the bottom of its jaw. That's how you can recognize Hookjaw. And Hookjaw swims around the world, and every issue is Hookjaw just absolutely shredding people to death. And usually <laughs> Hookjaw's victims are... are uh, corporate bad guys like somebody who wants to start an oil platform uh, (laughs) and refuses to move because like of the ecological impact the platform is going to have or like somebody who owns a tourist area on a beach or something these hook jaw comics they're hilarious the gore is so over the top but this is what alan moore i'm going to bring it back around to the eddie campbell stuff he says one of the things about Hookjaw is that uh, not the first artist, but one of the later artists on Hookjaw wasn't a horror artist. He had drawn romance comics. And so he would get these scripts and the scripts would basically be like, uh, yeah, here, show a severed arm on a beach. And the way that this artist would render these drawings, it didn't look like it was meant to be horrific. It was meant to be realistic and kind of just the frame and the shot and the way everything was set, he says it made it so detached that it made it 10 times more horrible because it wasn't saying, Hey, you're, you're watching a horror film. You're reading a girl's adventure story. And all of a sudden there's a severed arm on a beach. Yeah. And he compares it to like, um, the original artist and the sort of overall style of, Ta-da! Look, yeah. Look how gross it is. You know, talking about how the severed arm on the beach for the original artist of Hookjaw would be like a close-up of the edge of the arm, and it would be all about the gross out. And so that's what he wanted to capture with Eddie Campbell: this sort of 
removed, detached, clinical look at these horrific events. And just the eye, an eye toward story, not toward, ha look, the knife. Yeah. So Eddie Campbell has been interviewed uh, a lot in the last year or two about From Hell because he is currently working on what is referred to as the From Hell Masters Edition. And as we're recording this, I think it's like halfway through publication. The idea, we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later, is that he is going back and... Um, coloring the entire project using computer coloring, which wasn't available to him at the time. And w- during the coloring process is adding some some stuff to it to sort of flesh out the drawings. And he said he's catching the mistakes. Things yeah. that he looks, looks at and says, oh no, that's uh, that, that's no good. So there's been a lot of like rethinking from hell in the last year or two. And he says, yeah, we worked on this in 1988, uh, and it was 30 years ago at the time that he was being interviewed. Uh, And he said, then we finished it 20 years ago in 1998. There's this invisible curve that rises through the centuries. Can history then be said to have an architecture? That notion is most glorious, but it's also most horrible. And this is another one of the major themes of From Hell. And Campbell fills in some of the story that we referenced earlier. Um, for the second issue of Taboo, they were looking to start creating uh, a comic, Alan Moore's comic about the Jack the Ripper murders. And uh, Campbell says, in the first issue of that anthology, I wrote a peculiar and disturbing little story titled The Pajama Girl. I must have seemed an odd choice at the time because horror was not a subject that I had dipped into and the pajama girl was almost unclassifiable, but Alan wanted to come at this thing from an unusual angle. Several chapters would appear before anybody except Ripperologists knew it would be about the Whitechapel murders or any murders. It was important to set our events in a world of studied normality. He also points out you were talking about earlier about sort of the idea that like, well, Alan Moore had this cachet so he could get away with doing whatever he wanted to do. And Eddie Campbell says, you've got to remember that when we started out in England in the 1980s making comics, the business was foreign to us. And so we felt that we had a liberty and we were compelled to make up our own ways of doing comics. And so he says, this is why Alan Moore's scripts are so notoriously long he writes them in such a way that he sees the whole thing complete in his head, and then he describes what he sees in precise detail. He scripts a picture that works because he sees it as a picture in his head. He doesn't see a movie. He doesn't have some recollection of something that may or may not have once taken place. He describes a single picture down to telling you what size it is, what the characters are wearing, what the background details are, and then he describes the picture next to, next to it. And if there are eight pictures on the page instead of nine with two portions of the grid adjoined to make one larger image, then he'll tell me which one to put on the right at the top. Much of this is beautifully poetic, and I often thought it was sad that I was the only one reading the script at all. And so this is in stark contrast to the Marvel method. Oh, God, right? yeah. yeah. Or, or the sort of more regimented DC method, mm-hmm. right? Where... You know, a script like a film script that you adapt into a comic page or a script like a short story that you're on your own when you're drawing. 
Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of fascinating to compare and contrast the work, you know, I mean, I think Campbell is doing his best to remain faithful to Moore's vision, but at the same time, there's no way he could possibly include everything that Moore asks to be in a panel. And so what you see is the compromise. And I think both Moore and Campbell are comfortable with that compromise. Yeah. I think that Alan Moore's scripts must be useful to the artist, even when they cannot possibly do what he says. Like what's the one that keeps sticking out for me. I wish I could remember exactly, but it's like the sunset looks like, um, the slit wrist of a suicide. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Something that, like that. That you know, sounds, or, yeah. You know, vaguely the, swamp thing. Like blood seeping through the bandages around a mm. wrist. And, uh, certainly that's not helpful in the sense that, you know, that, that doesn't <laughs> give you what you're doing, but tonally, right. Aesthetically, yeah. Like overall, the overall uh, push of the work lives in all of those weird little descriptions and can kind of give the artist a way to understand what are they in for? What are they trying to encompass? Moore thinks about comic scripting as, as, as beyond just describing the plot to the artist and having having them render a plot yeah. he thinks about symbology he thinks about context he thinks about pacing um I, I don't think there's anywhere in here where they spend a lot of time talking about the grid but uh from hell like watchmen is done entirely in a nine panel grid uh and that helps the pace quite a bit and it, it allows more and campbell to control when it slows down when it speeds up a lot of the transitions in here are moment to moment transitions rather than jumping around through time and space. Although there's some of that too. Yeah. Um, but, but even when there is, as Tim Callahan writes, um, from hell has a steady rhythm, like a metronome or ticking clock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Greg Carpenter in his piece about from hell says that Campbell, uh, seemed intent to keep from hell, pure by avoiding any visual tricks or artificial gimmicks and he and Moore sometimes ended up in in different directions in that respect um so if you read Moore's original scripts and then you compare them to Campbell's drawings you can see some of this uh one of the ones he points out is like when Netley first appears in the book Alan Moore has this panel where he's like all right we're going to close in on his face and we want his face to stay in readers minds bear in mind this is going to be a man who's a cocky and egotistical little sod who's ruthlessly ambitious you know and and Campbell can't render that yeah there's no there's nothing in there that he can draw immediately but he's you know if he's going to draw a face now he knows that little piece of the the, the person yeah. and it can kind of yeah. cook in his head until the next time he draws it. So, and, and you see, this is one of the, I need to get this, uh, the companion book or the compendium, whatever it is. It's been on sale a couple of times and I've almost picked it up, but I haven't, haven't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, when you, you look at the, the way Moore writes to Campbell, this is another thing about Moore's scripts. They're written like letters. He writes yeah, them to the artist. Because Campbell was in Australia at the time. Yeah. So they, they were internationally collaborating in a time when there was not... Uh, you and I live in a very different world than mm-hmm. Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell because uh, you're in Portland and I'm mm-hmm. in Atlanta. And uh, the biggest problem we have looking each other in the eye is that uh, you can't quite get your face in the right place in the frame to look at the camera eye and at the screen at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, it's the, I remember reading stories and interviews with these guys about the process too. Like Moore would like send a couple pages uh, via fax to Eddie Campbell, and then Eddie Campbell for like the resources. Like I, I remember some story about how Eddie Campbell would like have to go to a, an office to get it the facts printed for him right and then like he would take a cab over to the parts of town (laughs) where he needed to like take photos for the resources so he could get the the oh no actually right yeah no no you're getting a little bit uh mixed up there eddie campbell had to hire someone from a distance that's it to go and take pictures in um whitechapel so actually we've got some stuff in the notes here so Moore would have things in his script like notes that say, see how nervous I get when I'm working with a respected comic book theorist like yourself. <laughs> uh, all that writing and wriggling just to assure you I'm not getting flashy. Um, and so Campbell says, nowadays when we want a photo of something, we Google it. But in 1988, we had to get down to the library and if we couldn't find it tough, I slipped a pal 10 quid to run a reel of photos of Cleveland street, for instance, Then I'd have to wait two weeks for the mail because I was living in Australia. We can Google it and find everything on the internet now. I can find photographs of buildings that no longer exist that I couldn't find before. Yeah, he's got a a lot of interesting points about, and I think that's part of why he wants to revisit it now. Also, I mean, let's be honest, the publisher and Eddie Campbell are probably going to make some good money off of the republished version as well and that will allow eddie campbell to continue making his indie comics how he wants to make them probably for the rest of his life and i'm sure alan moore is delighted to have a project you know based on his work that he doesn't have to disavow well i don't know about that (laughs) well wait what he's not gonna say no i have nothing to do with the master is we'll, he? We'll get to that. So Holy Eddie, shit. what did you find? Eddie Campbell's been interviewed about this process, and he's like, "I told Alan, and he hasn't responded." Um, <laughs> basically, um, okay. Yeah. Just as a side note, then what I'm talking about is the sort of uh, now notorious habit that Alan Moore has of declaring that any film adaptation of his work, he doesn't want any of the money; just give it to the artist and take my name off it. Say, which I think is what happened with the From Hell film. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. The, you know, uh, credit me as the original writer if you have to credit me and otherwise I want yeah. nothing to do with it. So I'm saying I have to assume that the new editions of From Hell would at least still be credited to him and that he would still get the money. His name is on them. And yeah, they're published through Top Shelf and Knockabout. So I think he's comfortable taking which he, whom, whom he's been working with already. Yeah. 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 But um, you're saying that he maybe has no interest in actually participating that's what it sounds like from Eddie Campbell in these interviews. Uh, we're kind of skipping ahead here, but Eddie Campbell has said, like, I reached out to Alan and I was like, hey, I'm going to do this. The publisher wants to do this. Are you cool with it? He never really responded. And then they had some um, communication about it later. And he said, you know, you've been talking for like 20 years now about how you want to do another appendices, kind of like right, the Dance right. of the Gulf Catchers. If we're going to do it, now's the time to do it. And Moore's kind of like, I don't know. Because I think not as much that he's disavowing the project as much as Moore is like, I'm I'm not doing comics anymore. Yeah, this this is not my work now. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, but you don't have to take 
your name he doesn't have to take his name off the colorized version right no i don't yeah i don't think he probably feels that way about it (laughs) okay we did jump ahead let's come back to what we were talking about eddie campbell sort of describing his process uh doing from hell they were continents apart and so a lot of this was by mail he was uh, the artist was far away from what he was drawing um, both in time and in space and then also he was uh, detached from ripperology right yeah he wasn't as interested in this as as moore was um but he he quickly became interested he because clearly it was a 10 year project some opinions yeah yeah uh, and eddie campbell does a really good job of summarizing why this is is important too not just the book from hell but but uh you know overall analyzing the jack the ripper murders he says jack the ripper was the first of the great evil serial murderers before that evil men tended to be kings or emperors or generals people who were in position of power we don't even know who jack the ripper was he could have been some scallywag who escaped from the lunatic asylum he could have been a complete nobody I think this is the reason for conspiracy theories. This is extremely relevant right now. Yes. Eddie Campbell. They want it to be a pres- a person in a position of power. Conspiracy theories exist because we want to feel that everything that goes wrong in the world is perpetrated by the people in power. We can't bear the thought that evil and horror are random. We want to think it's under control, even if it's the control of the people who are governing us. We can't live with the idea that it's just all chaos. We want there to be a pattern to it all. And that's what From Hell really is. It makes a pattern out of all of this madness. And he goes as far as to say, I think the real William Gull must have been wonderful. He was probably a great man. Uh, Eddie Campbell, I guess, is famously cool with the royals. He says, I even like Queen Victoria. I think we've maligned her. Well, there was uh, notoriously like a little bit of friction between him and Moore about including Victoria in the story. He didn't want to um, malign her. Right, right. Uh, so he talks about William Gull. He says, uh, as a doctor, Gull wrote the paper analyzing and giving the name to anorexia nervosa. This was one of the things he achieved. He's not just this obscure figure. He did things that are still relevant to the present age. He was the first man to understand anorexia and give it a name. And we've made him, we being him and Alan Moore, we've made him into a madman. I prefer to think we've created a madman who just happens to have the same name as him. I think we've created a villain on the scale of Hannibal Lecter. Uh, As my nightmare tells me, I, I think he might be right. Um, which leads us to talking about the publishing on this. We've, we've hinted around about it. We've talked about Taboo, but let's get into the, the nitty-gritty. So Taboo magazine was published by a company called Spider Baby Graphics that comics artist Steve Bissett put out. Uh, and it was published from 1988 to 1992. And then Kitchen Sink Press put out the last couple of issues in 1995. Um, Taboo bounced around between companies like Tundra Publishing, Kitchen Sink, and eventually these stories landed at Top Shelf. Uh, The graphic novel version that I have doesn't even have Top Shelf's logo on it. It's just Eddie Campbell Comics. Uh, And then I think Top Shelf handled the distribution on those. Yeah, Um, in uh, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Because Top Shelf is uh, right here. Um, and then they've been reprinting it 
with a top shelf uh, label on it. Yeah, so this is the history. So you go from Spider Baby Graphics to a company called Tundra Publishing. Tundra was based out of Northampton, Massachusetts, and it was owned by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles creator Kevin Eastman. It started in 1999, or 1990, sorry, and was a creator-owned company. Uh, they published things like Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, Alan Moore and Bill Sienkiewicz's Big Numbers, Alan Moore and Melinda Gibby's Lost Girls, and other books like The Crow, Madman, and Dave McKean's Cages. Uh, so, sorry, I was thinking of Taboo earlier. It was Tundra. Tundra was never profitable and closed three years after it started after spending $14 million. But look at what it did. Oh, yeah. I mean, the work that they published <laughs> is nuts. It, it's, it is some of the highest quality stuff in the medium, especially from that time. Um, but it wasn't sustainable. And um, I should mention at the time... Because uh, I, I lived in Massachusetts then. or Well, I, I was living overseas then, but I'm from Massachusetts. And uh, my family lives in Northampton, Massachusetts. Kevin Eastman also had a museum to comics in downtown Northampton. So it was pretty cool because you could go down to that museum at the time. I think it was called the Words and Picture Museum. And you could um, you could see like original art from this stuff and other projects like On the Walls. Uh, they had like original like uh, Frank Miller art from Sin City and Electra and stuff like that. It is hilarious that it's Northampton, Massachusetts publishing this when Northampton, England is the the place that Alan Moore yeah. is is, you know, uh, ensconced in, wedged into. And then the next company that picks it up is also based in Northampton, Massachusetts. <laughs> I guess uh, Dennis just heard uh, Kevin talking one day at the bar. Probably. Look, <laughs> Northampton ain't that big. Uh, yeah, so Dennis Kitchen, he'd been running Kitchen Sink Press since 1970. Uh, that company closed in 1999, and at the time, they were based in Northampton. And so when Tundra closed down, they picked it up and were publishing from hell. <laughs> and, and not just from hell. Uh, Kitchen Sink acquired oh, Northampton's yeah. holdings. All of it. Yeah, exactly. All of it. Uh, and then when the collected version came out, so I think what happened was Eddie Campbell printed his own versions and then had them distributed de depending on who helped him around the world. In America, it was Top Shelf. Top Shelf is an American comic book publisher founded in 1997 by Chris Staros and Brett Warnock. They are based in Atlanta, uh, just outside of Atlanta, uh, in Marietta, based in Georgia. Marietta, Georgia. Don't be calling that Atlanta. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I, I forgot that how you uh, suburbanites like to keep your identity and your taxes separate. Interesting, interesting that that's what you're taking from me. Marietta is a completely different culture than Atlanta. It's kind of extraordinary. Marietta has a uh, you know town square. I've like been. that's the kind of place it is. Yes, it is. It is certainly one kind of place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Let's let's talk about that a little bit because it, yeah. it is also kind of crazy to imagine that top shelf productions that prints all this stuff yeah. that is subversive and wild and, and, and offensive or confrontational, whatever you want to call it, sure. is in Marietta, Georgia, which is kind of known for being It is like the most homogenous conservative place yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. Um, well, so Staros... Uh, is is a I, I would I would refer to him as a hero of comics. He's, nice. He's just one of the nicest guys that I've ever had the pleasure of of communicating with in comics. 
uh, and he's just deeply uh, in love with the medium and really dedicated to it. Um, I should mention, so Staros lives in Marietta. Brett Warnock, I think, lived here in Portland or maybe in Seattle. Uh, and they were running the company from either side of the country. Okay, okay. But just recently, a couple of years ago, IDW bought Top Shelf. So now editions of From Hell that come out, they have the Top Shelf logo on them, but they're owned by IDW Publishing. Okay. And uh, is is it Top Shelf or IDW that has this uh, roster that we have in the notes? So these are all Top Shelf creators, but their work is now owned by... But not their yeah. work, but the the books are published through. But the distrib- yeah. So yeah. Craig Thompson, James Kolchaka, uh, Andy Runton, Nate Powell, Alex Robinson, Jeff Lemire, and Matt Kint. And the I think only the big book that most people probably know Top Shelf from now is March, which is the John Lewis book that that yeah. Nate Powell drew. Um, about the civil rights movement. That's like one of their biggest sellers. So I was going to say, Nate Powell is the only one of those that I can uh, think of his work right away because of March. Uh, Lemire and Kent look familiar. Have we talked about them before? You've read some Lemire books. You mentioned to me that you read Jeff Lemire's Moon Knight run or something like that. Oh, is that? Okay, that's who that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Matt Kent uh, is a yeah I like Matt I like both of those guys quite a bit but Matt Kent is based out of uh, St. Louis and uh, does a bunch of indie comics as well. Okay, yeah. so Lemire and Lemire was the artist on Warren Ellis's reboot of Moon Knight, right? No, no, Jeff no. Lemire wrote wrote the follow up to Warren Ellis's Moon Knight. Oh, okay, no, I stopped before um, I stopped when Warren Ellis stopped. Oh, I just okay. read it and then I moved on. But let us not make this into the inevitable Warren Ellis super context that it could become <laughs> and move on to um, another uh, distributor that we should mention, Knockabout Comics, which is a United Kingdom publisher of alternative comics. Founded in 1973 as Hassle Free Press, changed to Knockabout in 1978. Um, they've also published work by Robert Crumb, Ryan Hughes, and they are a co-publisher of Alan Moore's League of, of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's funny to see, like, okay, so there's all these presses and, and publishers in America, but Knockabout handled it in in England. Well, they, they handle it now in England. I, I don't know what the situation was before then. I, I wonder even if you could get Taboo Magazine in England. That would be... I'd be curious to hear from our English listeners if, if the serialized versions of From Hell were even available. Because these are all American publishers, and they were... They were really operating with thin margins, you know, Kitchen Sink, Tundra and Taboo were all they're like kind of legends now when you look back at the history of indie publishing. But, you know, they didn't I don't think anybody was scraping big money off of this. I mean, Kevin Eastman lost 14 million dollars. I would imagine that came from Turtles money. Yeah, he was like, I got some extra cash here. I'm going to do a publisher and put out some great work that I see from other people in the medium. Yeah, so because of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, we have understanding comics. And from hell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's take a break. I'm going to see if I got any of the Eastman Laird stuff up on the bookshelf here, and when we come back, we'll talk about um, how people responded to From Hell when it came out. Well, Chris, here is the traditional spot for uh, our Patreon message. 
and um, I'm not feeling really uh, motivated to deliver too much of that today. Oh, wow. Really? Were you only motivated by the cash this entire time? Yeah, that's what I was motivated by. Chris, (laughs) you got me. So we usually do our Patreon spot here where we ask you, the listener, to support the podcast so that we can keep it going. However, uh, one episode from now, we're going to stop the regular podcast. What we will be doing is continuing to host the feed on supercontextpodcast.libsyn.com, and we're looking for support to keep it up there. So if you are a patron or you want to be a patron, the way to help us out is to join us on patreon.com slash supercontext. So many URLs. So many URLs. And uh, support us with $1 a month. That's right. And we really, we only want $1 a month from anybody. There are no rewards beyond uh, the occasional check-in from Chris and I doing a mini-sode. Uh, we just want to keep the RSS feed up and active for as long as we can because people seem to enjoy the show. And they enjoy finding the show through one episode and then listening to as much of it as they can. So we just want to keep it out there for a little bit longer. Yeah, we actually didn't even intend on this show ending right in the middle of a quarantine pandemic, but uh, we've had several requests for us to keep doing the show. At the very least, I would like to keep the four years worth of episodes that we've recorded up and public so new people can get something out of it. Now, if you've ever heard the show before, you probably know that now come the thank yous. We want to say thank you to all the people who are supporting us on Patreon right now because they're the reason that this show has gone on as long as it has and why it has gotten as good as it did. So, thank you to, I'll be damned, our newest Patreon supporters. Thanks for jumping in right at the end, Chris Raglan and Adam Nigren. Uh, You're great. And uh, I wonder if you'll stick around once you discover that we're going to stop producing episodes. But, thank you. And also, thank you, Alex Laird, Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bong Man, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chovenich, Caroline Zoids, Chris Marlton, Cliff Landis, Coco, Dave Jordan, and Dave Wachter. Wow, that was an impressive haul there, Charlie. Thank you also to Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone, Fred Rasco, H.A. Eugene, Ira James Udiskin, James McDonnell, Jason Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, Juan Patton, Junta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirfula, and Lee Fowler. And thank you, Lokesh Dakar. Luciano Fuck, Luigi Oswego, Melinda Hale, Miriam Meany, Misha Moon, Nathan Weatherford, Nick Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bowe, Philip, R.M. Rhodes, The Podcast, Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, Robert Negoesco, and Roman Marichek. And thank you to Romantic Placebo, Ron Billado, Ross Llewellyn, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Thomas Tremberger, Veal Height, and Whitney Buchanan. Thank you, everybody. And we're back. Well, Chris, this one gets the awards. It does. It does indeed. 
which is surprising given how you know it it wasn't readily available but clearly the comics industry regarded this as something very special uh even before it was collected yeah so let's see i see five eisners best serialized story three best writer and one best graphic album uh the harvey award for continuing or limited series best graphic album of previously published work so it got awards while it was happening, and then it started getting awards when it was collected and and published, republished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also won awards that I have never heard of that have not managed to make its way into the Super Context uh, recordings before. The Eagle Award, the Anglomé Prix de la Critique. The That's com- pretty good. Yeah, Angoulême, yeah. I believe is how it's Angoulême. pronounced. Yeah. The Comics Buyer's Guide Fan Award the International Horror Guild Award, and the Ignatz Award. Um, so one of the yeah, things which that ones of those is, do you know? I know all of them. But okay. what, what's interesting about this is that this is the only book I think that we've covered on this entire four years of the show that has won awards across the spectrum. So the Ignatz Awards are given at SPX every year, Small Press Expo. Those okay. are small press, really indie-focused awards they're very rarely overlapping with the Eisner Awards. And Angoulême is a a French comics convention that is regarded as, like, one of the best comics conventions in the world by creators. Um, So for that convention to then also recognize this as, like, a great piece of work shows you that, like, across the spectrum of comic book creators, publishers, different countries different genres, different areas and distributors, everybody recognizes this as like, this is a great piece of work. Yeah. And, an important, like outstanding story, right? Mm-hmm. Narrative. Like these awards are not, um, uh, just for the writer, just for the artist. They are writer and artist. So I've been to the Eisner's, the Harvey's and the Ignatz awards. And they are all very different affairs. Uh, I would imagine Angoulême is even more different. Hopefully one day I'll be able to make it out there. You have a very... You found numbers, but they're yeah. kind of all over the place. And I, I don't know that I can understand them exactly. So let's use our usual caveat here. These are direct market numbers, which means that they are what's reported to have been sold to the stores not what the stores themselves have sold, and that this also excludes the book market. So we're not talking about copies that have been sold through Amazon or at Barnes & Noble or at your local bookstore. These are only through direct market comic book stores in the United States. At the same time, they give us a general idea of what kind of sales there are on these things. Yeah. I, I cannot remember where I bought my copy. So... The numbers go back to when this was being published in single issues. So Taboo came out, and then I think the last couple issues of From Hell were published as like single pamphlets. Uh, and number 10 was published by Eddie Campbell, and it sold 9,154 copies. And that sounds like a very small number. <laughs> it is the highest number. Yeah. In and any the of these that printings. sounds like a very small number for a revered 
and influential comic mm-hmm. one issue. And so then you might say, oh, well, it probably, you know, once it got collected and was being published, that it then started to really catch. And yeah. The original trade of the collected issues, we have 5,200 copies. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this thing, remember, like, we've talked before about how, like, comic book numbers are relatively small comparatively to other media, right? And that as we're recording this, well, as we're recording this, the comic book industry is imploding. But but just prior to us (laughs) recording this. Like most industries, Chris, come on now. (laughs) I would say, like, a a good sales figure for a book would be 10,000. Uh, and if you did somewhere between ten and twenty thousand, that would be enough to keep a book on going. Higher than that would be gangbusters, right? Yeah. But remember, this is twenty five years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> so these numbers are even lower in comparison for the nineties. And also, you have a couple of years on here where you just slid the insult into the list. The uh, trade has a listed sell, uh, sales figure of 70 copies in 2000. Yeah. yeah. So I saw this and I saw that single years had multiple copies sold to stores. So what I think must have been going on is Top Shelf was probably printing new editions and those were getting shipped out to stores. Like maybe they only shipped 70 copies because that's all they had left and then they shipped out more later that year. But the records show that in 2000... This just sold 70 copies. Yeah. And then 2012 is 487. Yeah. With then another sale of 2300 and then another sale um, two years later of 2000. So it's like somewhere in there is a news story or a promotional thing or. Um, well, there's a little yeah. movie called From Hell that came out. Oh, wasn't out. that earlier than 2012? Oh, yeah. I think that came out, I'm going to guess, mid-2000s, 2005. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. So the um, so what I'm looking at is not a steady demand. You know, this this is something that comes in and out of the cultural conscious, consciousness. Um, and not, you know, there wasn't some spike when the movie came out that we can see on these... Um, Numbers, right? Right. So uh, I just looked it up. The movie came out in 2001. So that means that <laughs> the the serialized version of this, despite having sales this small, still word of mouth reached the Hughes brothers. And that it was only when this was probably first published as a, as a uh, collected edition in 99 that they got their hands yeah. on it and they were like, let's turn this into a movie. They shot the movie and then it came out a year later. Oh, so these 2000 copy, the, the 70 copies in the year 2000, uh, that was the people who got the newsletter from the Hughes brothers. Maybe, <laughs> but it's, I mean, these are tiny, 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 tiny numbers, like insultingly small numbers for what is regarded as one of the best graphic novels in the world. Yeah. Um, we've got, uh, Slipcase Edition came out in 2015. That only sold 500 copies in the direct market. Uh, in 2016, the hardcover edition was published. That only sold 830 copies. So the only thing that can that we can maybe pull from this, like it's clear that From Hell is respected and known. Yeah. So maybe its sales numbers really do exist in the book market. 
you know, Amazon, Maybe. Barnes and Noble, whatever you want to, yeah. you know, however you want to classify it. Yeah. That uh, it jumped, it jumped the boundary of the comic book store. Right. Um, yeah, I would hope so. Um, and we don't have access to those numbers. I will just say anecdotally that I bought mine in 1999, 2000. And uh, my cover price is $35 US. And I remember that being exorbitant at yes, the time. Yes, I remember that. Like, I think I took two tries to buy it because, like, the first time I looked at it and said, oh, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know if I can. I was like, I really like this guy's stuff, but wow, that's a commitment. And, and now, now I've got the slipcase edition of Providence back there that cost me two hundred bucks or something, and and I just right. I bought that because I wanted to have it. <laughs> yeah. So you know, there's um, I I think like probably the newer versions are a little bit cheaper than this. And hell, you can read this on Hoopla now for free. Um, but uh, just to give us some present day context, we do have numbers on the master editions that are being put out right now. These are the versions that Top Shelf and Knockabout are publishing where Eddie Campbell has recolored everything. Yeah. The third issue of that sold 2,400 copies. Two comic book stores. Two comic books. Well, I don't think bookstores have access to single issues. I think it's only going to comic book stores. Yeah. I uh, just wanted to re-say oh, that. Yeah. Like, this is, this is the direct market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no book market involved here. Um, and then the fifth issue, which I think is the last issue as of this recording, sold 2,163 copies. This is now, just, I mean, look, I don't own those either. I love this book. I just said this is one of my favorite books in the world, and I don't, I'm waiting for the trade on those. Right. <laughs> now, we've already talked about these master editions a little bit, so let's do a quick summation. Um, Eddie Campbell said that he got a phone call, you know, like, hey, let's do something new. Let's put it out again. And, uh, and he thought that they would have to do something very serious about giving it a new edition. And he suggested colorizing it. And the publisher said, this is all Eddie Campbell. Okay. He says, the publisher said, that's not going to work. Is it? It's always been black and white. And then he sent them a couple pages and they said, okay, let's get it done right now. Like <laughs> the colorized version sold the publisher immediately. It's pretty gorgeous. Like yeah. when I first heard about it, I was like, uh, no, thank you. And then I saw the right. samples that Campbell had done and they look great. Well, he seems to be really enjoying it. And, um, computer technology is allowing him to do stuff that he really couldn't have imagined doing before. Yeah. Like changing the black ink lines to different colors when he's yeah. colorizing. So instead of those like scratchy knife edge lines and then having to put color on top of it, he's actually able to go back and change it. He yeah, said that that's referred to as color holds in coloring. Okay. Um, and yeah, so the idea is that you're changing the color of the actual ink. And so he's able to like, if there's a spot of blood on the floor, he's able to turn the black ink into red ink, but also have, the ink that was drawing the floor be brown yeah. potentially. So there's a lot more depth and texture. And he says that he's also in a way sprucing up a few things. He says, I'm revising for color clarity and continuity. Uh, I can go in and clarify what's going on. He, he says, uh, an artist can get lazy occasionally. Um, there was one, he said, uh, it seemed like during the psychogeography chapter that they might've been, writing in a different wagon from one panel to the next. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
Yeah, he actually says um, there were points in which the way that he was drawing was purposefully obscure because they couldn't account for historical anomalies. So he developed a style of what he calls deniability, where we could say, oh, you know, we didn't really know what that looked like. It's not meant to be so and so or whatever. Like, so uh, spoilers for this story. But there's like a twist in which like the the final murder the person who's murdered is not meant to be Marie Kelly. She's meant to have escaped. And in the story. In, in the, the story. story that Alan Moore has written. Yeah. Um, but Eddie Campbell was like, eh, you know, sometimes you can't tell whether or not it's the same <laughs> character or not. Sometimes that required foggy drawing and there was a lot of focus, soft focus on things that aren't supposed to be soft focus. Um, we were only hinting at some things. And he said, that's why from hell has a certain look it's like you're seeing evidence from the back of a galloping horse (laughs) i'll go with that uh it takes a little time to get used to for me it took a little time to get used to the style and Mm -hmm. to sort of accept it but then it does like work some magic once you've been reading it for a while when i first read it i remember that being my experience too that i was like oh this is a different language of comics than i'm used to Um, and it was like, it took me about halfway through before I really understood how to read it. And I'll be honest, every time I read this book, I get something different out of it. I, I know now when I read it the first time, I did not understand the psychogeography stuff, the Freemason stuff. Oh, for sure. It operates like a novel in that way that it does have, um, uh, revealing, it reveals power as you move through it. Yeah. Yeah. Now you talked Uh, a little bit about the gull catcher stuff, the, yeah. The sort of ripperology, the the piss taking of the ripperology stuff, and uh, Eddie Campbell says that he did finally connect to Alan Moore, you know, to say, "Hey, do you want to do this?" And Alan Moore said, "I guess this is the only time we could do it." But Eddie Campbell finally says, uh, "I'm not promising anything because we'll probably have to." beat Alan Moore up to get it out of him. We'll have to tie him to the computer and make him top type it out. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, Hey, the coronavirus has given them a couple months of uh, leeway there. So hopefully I think those color editions were coming out like an issue every two months or something like that. So presumably it would have been finished by the end of 2020. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about consumption. We've mentioned the film adaptation. I've not seen it. Chris has. Chris is very dismissive of it. Let's give Glenn Miller a chance to just tell you exactly why the movie is not really uh, something to connect to the work. Miller writes, The spine of From Hell is the conspiracy story and, of course, the murders, often depicted in scratchy horror by Eddie Campbell. And indeed, Strip all the other stuff Moore's thrown in, then you can just end up with the vapid film starring Johnny Depp. From Hell as a comic is much more than just a murder mystery. It's a weird movie. I was, uh, I haven't seen it since it came out, so I guess it's been 19 years since I've seen it, but I was really disappointed, I remember at the time, um, because, like I said, like I was like buying these like Jack the Ripper books, and I was like so into it. Um, and, yeah, the movie's just... It's exactly what you would expect from a Hollywood thing. It's not a bad movie, but they just drain all of the the context out of it and just turn it into a whodunit. Yeah. Uh, and in 2015, FX was developing a from hell drama um, with the producer of the movie. Uh, 
I haven't heard anything more about that. Have you? No. Um, I'll just say, doesn't it sometimes feel like FX is purposely designing content just for our generation? Oh my God. So the Hulu FX channel, you know, it yeah. just sort of puts it all up there. I do feel like, Oh, this is, Oh, this is my demographic. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm with I, you. I feel the same way about FX that I feel about like a 24 films. It feels like they've like laser focused, targeted my demographic and are just like, yep, here you go. Here's, here's some more stuff. I mean, there's occasionally things that come out by them that I'm like, eh, I'm not really interested in, but even that stuff, I'm like, okay, that's probably good. It's just not for me. Well, this is back to a, dis- a discussion we had when we were talking about Hyperion, like the age of people who work in positions of power in media companies. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It means that now they're starting to tap the stuff that they're starting to go back. One of those people who, one of the 2,000 people who bought the trade, right, is mm-hmm. saying, what can we do with this? Oh, shit. Don Murphy owns the rights because they made that movie. Let's go get him. Right, right, right. Well, it's been five years and nothing's happened with that. Um, and honestly, I'd be really surprised if even an FX series was able to do an adaptation justice. But uh, there's always time to tell. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, so a big, big theme of this book is about gender and power structures and class and power structures in Victorian England. Um, and so I think that it's important for us to talk about representation in here, especially in light of, you know, Alan Moore, uh, is notorious for being, uh, I don't know, accused of, of uh, fetishizing sexual violence yeah. in his, in his um, works. And this is a story that's all about sexual violence. You know, it's predicated upon an instance of real sexual violence. And yet um, it sounds like from the interviews that more genuinely was trying to do something to represent the women in a way that they hadn't been represented before. Yeah. And, and the way they did that is by representing the world that these women existed in and the choices they had to make. They did not place modern women into a time period so that, you know, you would, you would be uh, titillated by someone who looked like, uh, you know, women, women, yeah, Heather Graham, women now. Um, And uh, as Miller, uh, Glenn Miller, who we already quoted a little bit says, Moore and Campbell don't flinch in showing us the grim, hellish life of working-class sex workers in the 19th century and the poverty of the East End of London. Um, it is then also uh, put into stark relief with the class differences between William Gull, private doctor to the Queen, and um, the life that Prince Albert is you know, performing some kind of sexual cultural tourism in, yeah. you know? Uh, and you know, there, there's a moment when there, these women gather and they hatch a plan to blackmail royalty, blackmail the queen. Yeah. And they want like, like enough money to just pay their rent for a month. Like they're not asking for a lot of money. (laughs) And it's totally like if someone was in a bar here in Atlanta and they Mm. were saying, okay, this is how we're going to get $1,500 from Donald Trump. Yeah, 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 right, right. And and the, just the, the utter, the inevitability, it's almost like, it's like a Wire episode, you know, set in, in uh, Whitechapel. The, the crushing effects 
of industrialism and capitalism are so obvious that in a way the kind of um the 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 release of tension that happens in a scene of murder is almost a relief compared to the conversations about how am i going to get enough rent for tonight you know how am i going to get enough food what's going to happen to me what's going to happen to my family yeah this is something that i've been thinking about a lot in terms of a story that i'm working on right now that poverty is its own form of violence and people being hungry is violence Mm -hmm. and um that these women were already victims of violence because of that and then these gruesome murders were an accentuation of that yeah um glenn miller who who does another one of the big like reviews of this talking about the themes has a a passage here that I, I feel like speaks to why from hell is is such an important work uh, miller says i'm drawn to the book because it's a commentary on class and politics of the time which should have died a death in the 19th century but the tendrils of privileged class and creating inequality to benefit the wealthy via enforced governmental poverty is still relevant today 120 or so years after the jack the ripper murders yeah uh tim callahan describes it as um, the unfolding of fate as opposed to a mystery plot or a, a you know an adventure or what's going to happen but just this you know here's what happens to people in this situation yeah uh, there's another piece by Michael J. Prince in which Prince describes the book and says Alan Moore establishes systemic patriarchal sexual violence as the backdrop of Victorian London Rape and other acts of physical repression are easily linked to the notion of sexual violence. Moore treats it as a concentration on society as a whole. You know, I'll admit the psychogeography chapter is a lot to get through. Like, I love this piece of work, but if I were going to edit it in any way, I might ask him to cut it down (laughs) like by 20 pages. Um, But the important thing about that is that it's not just it's not just Alan Moore being like woo magic it's Gull stating like this is a misogynistic crime that we're about to commit not just in the sense that we're going to do violence to women but in the sense that we are a part of a society that uh, perpetually oppresses women and we're going to continue that oppression through this violence yeah and and it's the weight of it is i think part of the 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 the, oh couldn't you cut this down i think is part of the the process of the book like dragging you into it you know Mm -hmm. like you cannot escape gull telling you about this just like netley can't just like um the country can't escape the history just like you the reader can't escape to the um to the next sensationalistic bit So let's end this episode. We'll talk about some of the major themes that are in here. And I I think the big ones are that Alan Moore claimed that he wanted to think about solving crimes in a holistic manner, the psychogeography aspect, which we'll revisit. And then we haven't really even talked about this. There's a whole Alan Moore fourth dimensional time is a flat circle thing going on in here as well. Uh, that is true. I will. I will say that the the bits at the end that sort of embody what you just described, yeah, 
do feel like the um uh like the fiction of the story like it, it's almost like when a, his like spirit is visiting yeah. all of yeah it's like the lightness of of the um the fictional narrative being declared because you've been so deep in the seeming you know seemingly documentary uh style mm-hmm. presentation of poverty and violence and so it's it's almost like it gives the reader some relief yeah i think so but i also think like as a theme it connects well, we'll get into it. It yeah, connects yeah. Uh, Jack the Ripper to the present day that it was being written in, but also um, I think it distinguishes it from all the other Ripperology nonsense uh, in in that, like, I don't think anybody, even Stephen Knight, imagined that William Gull was having hallucinations of the future while he was killing women. Right, right. Or that his ghost would then uh, continue to pass by windows yeah. in the future. Oh, by the way, fun fact that I picked up this time on reading the book. Did you catch this in the Dance of the Gull Catchers? Stephen Knight went on to become a Rajneeshi. No, I have no, I didn't catch that. Yeah. Yeah, so after he wrote this book, he joined the Rajneesh cult that is now famous because of the Wild Wild Country documentary. Oh. Uh, and okay. Uh, then he passed away afterwards. So it feels like I should make some kind of connection to the uh, holistic detective agency stuff that came up in the research to that, where you have to, you know, solve everything to solve any one thing. But I will now just use this blunt segue to get into this. Uh, Tim Callahan says that Alan Moore cites Douglas Adams's novel, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Which I guess is now also a um, a television a TV show. show yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it, but yeah. Um, he said that that novel, especially especially the holistic detective part of it, gave him like his way into the story. A holistic detective says more. You wouldn't just have to solve the crime; you'd need to solve the entire world that the crime happened in. That was the twist I needed. So this is also part of that like huge long psychogeography chapter yeah. is that solving the world that a murder occurred in because you can't just say oh this woman was killed because she went the wrong way down the road why'd you right. go that way down the road why was a person waiting for her why was you know how did uh this culture get us to the point where there were people who were poverty stricken serving folks who had far too much etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i think that this describes better than I have what I've been looking for out of my true crime. You know, I, I, I don't want to just read the sensational. I don't want the, uh, dateline version of things. You know, I want to get a reflection on how these crimes reflect the world in which they occurred in. Um, and I think the really good stuff does that, you know, from hell, uh, we talked about recently, we talked about um, Truman Capote and In Cold Blood. I think uh, um, the first season of True Detective does that. Yeah. But, I mean, the first season of True Detective doesn't even quite reach the the heights of From Hell. I mean, From No, Hell it doesn't. Really... And I think you could find yet another <laughs> comparison here to Pizzolatto clearly using Alan Moore as a reference point. Yeah. Yeah. Right down to actual stolen dialogue. Right. Yeah. And like his themes in true detective are 
holistic detectives mm-hmm. and uh, time is a uh, fourth dimension. <laughs> Greg Carpenter says uh, of From Hell, the work, what began as an exploration of murder has become a commentary on the whole British Empire. Like a great prose novel, From Hell deliberately interrogates every strata of society. Prostitutes, shop girls, doctors, performers, artists, nobles, and even the queen. From Hell, in keeping with its title, emerges from the pit but aims heavenward, a comic book tower of Babel, piling on level after level of ideas with the kind of ambition that makes the former superhero work of its own King Nimrod seem written in a different language. <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> turn of Pretty phrase. Pretty intense, yeah. Yeah. Um, there is an academic article that we consulted for this episode that is by someone named Elizabeth Ho, and it is called Post-Imperial Landscapes, Psychogeography and Englishness in Alan Moore's graphic novel From Hell, a melodrama in 16 parts. It's a very well-written piece. I just wish that she would have included Eddie Campbell in the citation there. (laughs) But Elizabeth Ho goes on to say, that this book uh, is an intervention in how Englishness is produced as an identity, uh, and specifically because of their attention to the psychogeography stuff, that From Hell is attempting to remap what is now a touristy part of London as a place where there was a lot of trauma and suffering, and that these were all markers of the national consciousness actually changing over the century. Yeah, and she connects it back to Sinclair's work, too, saying that, you know, uh, Ian Sinclair and Alan Moore, among others, are hoping to rescue the past or reclaim dead ground, and they will have to grapple with such pressure groups as developers, clerks, eco-freaks, and ward bosses who are hoping to curtail or erase the remaining traces of historical change. This is almost like hauntology, you know, uh, in its kind of working on what is changed by uh, extreme and fast capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark Fisher is also British, you know? Um, I feel like... I'm going way off script here, but I feel like because they come from a society that is already post-imperial... Yeah. That it's easier to have reflections like this about the world than it is in the context of America, which is, as we are recording this, an empire in descent. Yeah. I mean, I, I was talking to someone about, like, what really marks the disarray of this moment in time. Mm, yeah. And I think one of the, one of the big factors is we don't have a person to look at collectively to tell us the story of right now. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's in a way that's a luxury, but also that's, that can be an essential piece of any group of people working together. Yeah. What you're talking about uh, in rhetorical criticism is referred to as constitutive rhetoric, where your leader, typically in American rhetoric, a president, but I would imagine in, this situation a prime minister or a queen uh gives a speech that defines the identity of a people and helps them come together as a community even though that identity might be imaginary 
Yeah. And, and sometimes that identity has to be understood in terms of goals and obstacles. Yeah. Right. Which I think becomes a lot more obvious to people in an industrialized world where it's not people existing in a natural world and each day is wake up, live, go to sleep. Mm. But instead is, well, how do we accomplish? How do we develop? How do we accomplish? How do we produce? How do we profit? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, the idea here from Elizabeth Ho's point of view is that this book not only reflects on what the context of society was like in England in the 1880s, but it does so through the lens of the 1980s and Thatcherism in redefining what the identity, what it means to be English. Yeah. Here's the, the summation. Um, that ripperture, <laughs> ripper antics, I guess, or ripper like uh, exploration. Ripper, ripper literature. Oh, okay. Got it. Ripperature and psychogeography coalesce around the East End. This is deliberate. The area has received the most attention from Margaret Thatcher's efforts at regeneration through investment capitalism and contains many diverse political elements and identities that can be considered as anti-Thatcher. Yeah. So like, as I said, like when I remember going on that tour, I was like, wow, this is like pretty nice. It looks like people have fancy condos here. Like I, I, it wasn't what I expected. And I think even in that Kyle Kinane bit, which he did like maybe two or three years ago, he's like, yeah, you're just walking around and there's a KFC. And I said something (laughs) like, yeah, I could butcher a bucket of KFC right about now or something like that. Um, so this, it makes perfect sense that, uh, from hell has overlapping times as part of the narrative down, yeah. down to the, the, uh, uh, not down to, but including the extreme of the consciousness of one of its, you know, limited narrators seeing the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Which brings us to the nature of time as a theme in this, which I feel like, Moore is one of the people who really like took off with this stuff in the eighties and it's now reverberating into our pop culture nowadays. Like we just mentioned Pizzolatto, but, uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but I'm watching that show devs on FX (laughs) and, and devs. The episode I watched just last night was like, let's do an episode. That's all about the four dimensions of time. And, and, uh, we'll talk about like the physics of which, I'm sure our listener Carmela Padovich is going to hate me talking about this, but like, I don't understand like superimpositions and all, all, all that kind of right. stuff, but, uh, they, they go well into that. It feels like any piece of, uh, dense genre literature or storytelling nowadays feels like it's obliged to like put its baby toe into the four dimensional stuff. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I don't know if I think that the people that I read in high school, like some of the fantasy and science fiction were so already digging into it. Yeah. That maybe it felt like it was always present, but I will, I will totally go with, it seems like pop culture is embracing that idea of, you know, time is happening all at once. Uh, The, the Kurt Vonnegut sort of idea of that, that alien race seeing everything at once, despite it happening to us or Philip K. Dick, the empire was always there. That kind of stuff. I I think, I think more 
was part of the generation that picked up on it from folks like Vonnegut, Philip K. Dick, Michael Moorcock. Yeah. And then they popularized it in our generation's mind. And now our generation, like you said, are the ones who are controlling mass media. And so all of a sudden it's showing up everywhere. Now we're responding to things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a lot of people uh, that we've already talked about or, or already referred to speak of how time is presented in From Hell and how uh, Alan Moore must have been concerned both with the idea of time and also with the idea of his time at the moment. Tim Callahan yeah. says that From Hell uh, includes echoes of the past, future, and present all colliding as if it were a jumbled timeline, despite being a very strict linear telling of the conspiracy story. Yeah. Greg Carpenter points out that the first lines are bloody shambles this last six years, a shambles inflicted from without, which in the story is about Europe and the Russian Revolution and the end of World War One, but could very well be about Moore's dealings with DC Comics. Um, right. Post Watchmen. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then uh, here's another, I believe this is an academic article, isn't it? Oscari um, Rantala writes complex repetitive patterns of watchmen and from hell simulate simultaneity simultaneity and the detachment of time and space which can be explored through the concept of the fourth dimension let me see if i can unpack that god i think i think what they're do. trying to talk about is comics being a medium that is uniquely suited to talk about uh the idea of time as a fourth dimension because of the the pace and nature of which you read and are also visually exposed to comics and the nature in which Moore and Gibbons and Watchmen and Moore and Eddie Campbell here and from hell use the nine panel grid and are uh, bouncing back and forth between moment to moment transitions that are in one place at one time moving slowly and then the next panel will snap to like a hundred years in the future. Right. And then snaps right back to the context that you're in. Now we could go into incredible detail on this. And so I think I want to pull out of that and just say, this appears to all connect to Alan Moore's kind of overall statement of comics, which is comics can be a medium and should be a medium that tells stories in a way that only comics can, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of the, his essential rejection of movies being made of his stuff is that you can do a kind of repetition and a kind of visual patterning um, in comics that you can't do in anything else. Yeah. And that's what you should try to do in your work. Yeah, I mean, that might be a little bit of a simplification. And long-time listeners of the show will know what Charlie just said was actually one of the first things to get him in hot water on Reddit, I believe, (laughs) uh, four years ago when we first started this show. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, take what you will from that. But yes, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't, I don't think that Alan Moore has like a overall sweeping generalization of why comics shouldn't be movies. Um, but that is part of why he writes the way he does for comics. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Ho picks up again by talking about how, uh, in the story, Gull's work itself is not just like apocalyptic and not just about the gendered nature of the city of London, 
but that it's also about, and this is again, something like you and I would never be able to understand, Thatcherite enterprise culture. And that that part of London serves to mirror Thatcher's economic restructuring of the welfare state and created an age of popular capitalism and a decade of growing inequality, right? Like all I know is my experience of walking around and seeing fast food restaurants in that neighborhood. I, I, uh, I don't think I could capture this and more, I don't think anywhere in the text or even in the appendices mentions Thatcher by name. No. And, and this is the, the work done in a place about the whole place, as opposed to just the single sensationalistic tourism, yeah. uh, you know, generator, uh, there's almost a, almost a trust of people's ability to get what's being said, even if they don't know the details, mm-hmm. right? Because you've put enough care into how you deliver it. So your knowledge of the place, Alan Moore's knowledge of the place informs a narrative that is still powerful to someone like me, even if I don't know what was actually happening. So Ho goes on, like her big argument is essentially that um, what's fascinating about From Hell is that it forces any, like what I just referred to as constitutive rhetoric, any of those attempts to define what English identity is, it, it forces it to confront with its actual past. And she looks at both Thatcher as an example and then fast forwards and looks at labor and the rhetoric of Tony Blair and says, like, you can see how both of those, even though they're politically polar opposites, were attempting to define British identity in a certain way. And from hell kind of forces you back into recognizing, like, the inequality, both from a class level and a gender level that's inherent in that culture. And and to not allow um, empire to drop from the understanding, even if mm-hmm. they were post empire, even if they were, I don't think post royalty is the way to say it, but like even yeah. if, if the way that royalty was understood was now very different, and the way that empire was understood, still there was this kind of um, uh, reengagement or necessary reengagement with that history. Yeah, it's an interesting piece. It's it's quite long, but uh, we'll have a, a citation to it in the the show notes. I think it's up on JSTOR. Um, so you can probably read it on JSTOR. I had to use Char- have Charlie use his library skills to get us a copy that we could actually document here. You mean my library's budget to buy access? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. Because I wasn't willing to spend $15 on a PDF file of this And article. you shouldn't have because, you know, someone had already spent that for me. And we're a team, Chris. There we go. <laughs> which leads us to the last theme of this, which I think the, the fourth dimensional thing leads into quite well, which is Moore's theory is that this story acts as, and I don't mean this story as much as the story of trying to figure out Jack the Ripper, is something that allows you to summarize the Victorian era, but also... Uh, acts as a birth to the 20th century. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this before. Um, It is, it's like the Jack the Ripper story to make it something more than Jack the Ripper. Yeah. uh, He had to go past the moment in time and the, the, the exploitative nature of it and then start talking about what was happening around those Ripper murders 
Yeah. And by the time he had gotten through with that expansion, he had found the entirety of the shift in global consciousness yeah, available right, to him. Right. Um, Glenn Miller describes the book as being a study of not just evil, but also violence, sexism, social and economic politics, and magic. Lots and lots of magic. <laughs> right. He points out Hitler's birth is in there. Um, yeah. There is a yeah. scene that is explicitly, well, Hitler's conception. Crowley's then, in there, too. What's that? Alistair Crowley. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then um, two people who are mentioned that I have no idea who they are, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. Is yeah, that, I'm not uh, familiar with them either. So the, the oh, it, it, this is kind of a Moby Dick thing, right? The, the entirety of a particular moment in time, you know, all of the knowledge of the cultural and technical uh, underpinnings of society pressed into a extraordinary adventure narrative. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so from hell is kind of an attempt at that. Although Alan Moore was not trying to stuff everything that he knew about his moment in time. He was trying to parse everything he could learn about a different moment in time. Yeah. I think that's what's important here. Um, this is a story that is so well-researched that it shows you how we haven't actually come all that far that like the resonances I don't think are all purposeful on Moore's part and that the class discrepancies or the gender discrepancies or, or all of these things that these, these various writers are unpacking here. Um, it's the Clio dynamics of it that like, we're going through periods of crises and turmoil and then peace over and over again in these cycles. And this was a moment of crisis in the identity of, of the people who had like a, a psychological relationships with the city they lived in. And it reverberated for a century and longer. And there's a scene that um, despite all of the thorough annotations of everything that happens in the book. There is one scene that Moore is cagey about, almost ironically, you know, obscure about. He says, the reader will have to figure this one out by themselves. And it's a scene that uh, sort of posits a escape from Gull. Yeah. A psychological and magical escape from Gull. And a woman sort of cries back to the past, uh, this is not for you. Get yeah. back to where you came from. And this like incredibly hopeful, scarily hopeful moment is one of the things that Moore sort of declares, this is not researched. I didn't yeah, find something not. to prove this. <laughs> this is something that the reader must take on themselves. Yeah, it is. It is clearly the most fictional aspect. Uh, if I remember the movie correctly, again, it's been 19 years, but I think that is one of the few things that the movie actually... Uh, well, it's a to. beautiful visual moment and it's a very yeah. striking narrative moment. But the thing I, you know, the thing that really strikes me about that is that hope, hope and transformation is what Alan Moore singles out by removing explanation from it in his mm -hmm. annotations. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in, in that way, I mean, we could go real deep into this, right? But like, Al, 
I believe Alan Moore's notion of magic isn't Eldritch Blasts and Doctor Strange Levitation Cape. I believe that what he means is magic is how you use language and storytelling to change the world. And in that instance, something that is a occult that's occurring in the fictional story that he's created, he's seeing as like just a glimpse of hope that he's trying to inject into the world in light of these brutal murders and this all this class discrepancy uh both in <laughs> both in that time and his own time um so yeah i mean we're, we're kind of being cagey about this i don't know when you read this story was did it seem like it was that obscured like it didn't make any sense because i felt like it was pretty there's a lot of hand-holding telling you like what had happened along yes, the way I, it, it i i read it twice and then i felt like i got it but there's also you know, there was some stuff that I got that there was a full annotation of, right? A description. That's right. Really. Yeah. And there was some stuff that was easy to be explained that also he provided, here's the support of it. But it's like the, um, the moment when, uh, he breaks free of the research, the moment yeah. that he breaks free of historical fact or, um, historically influenced fiction, right? Is this hopeful moment in which, uh, a woman beats a man at his mm-hmm. own game. Right. Yeah. And so let's it just does... come out and, and say it. So okay, go for it. So the last murder is Marie Kelly and more posits that it wasn't actually Marie Kelly that was killed because she had a lot of friends who were coming back and forth and staying with her in this, uh, this flat that she rented and that, the murderer killed somebody who wasn't Marie Kelly. And not only did she escape him, but she escaped the clutches of prostitution in London, moved to Ireland, went on, become a mother of four whom she named all of her children after the victims. Yeah. And then, uh, when Gull dies, his ghost visits them and she among all the other things that he visits all the other yeah. future that he sees and he she essentially exercises his ghost and banishes him from that hopeful place yeah and sends him back to his body so that he can die where he dies miserably while two people are fucking like inches from his head i tell you chris sometimes you just you can end a podcast <laughs> like nobody's business <laughs> It was a, it was quite a turn of phrase, but yeah, um, that's the fictionalized ending to from hell. The, the, the least accurate, the least researched of any of it. And in the, in the film, uh, by the way, it, both in the film and in the, uh, the book, it's culminated in that, like, there's a kind of romance that goes on between the inspector and the Mary Kelly character. But the inspector and Mary Kelly don't know that one another have those roles because they're both using, uh, like, pseudonyms. I don't think I'll ever see this movie. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. 
Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chain Links. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's. <laughs>